Good afternoon, everyone. We are back for lesson six of John Clayton's Does God Exist? studies. I hope you've been able to look back through and, and watch the other five lessons that we've heard so far. He does strongly encourage a, a building approach to this because jumping into the middle of this study and then trying to uh, follow, following it won't be the problem. It's not that the information is that complex. It's just that he is building an argument here as he goes. Uh, case in point, uh, first lesson talks about was or was there not a beginning. The second point, uh, if there was a beginning, we have to conclude that there was because of uh, evidence that we have. Uh, was it caused or, or was it by accident? Thirdly, if it was caused, was it a personal cause or a non-personal cause? And then if it was personal, uh, which it, it appears to be due to evidence once again, uh, was there design involved in that? And so we had our last two lessons were on um, what we called uh, uh, natural uh, design. I can't remember. Intuitive design, that's what it was. And then uh, he mentions at the beginning of this tape, he'll run back through these again, but he'll uh, mention the idea uh, once again that intelligent design is not science, it's a way to uh, look at science, it's using science, it's not uh, science itself to, to prove or provide evidence, uh, leading us to the conclusion that the uh, God of the Bible was the one who created the universe. And so uh, as we enter into the study, keep those things in mind. One of the things, if, if you're, a, I was an English major uh, in, in college, and I was okay in math. I think I may have mentioned that. I can't remember. Uh, but he gets into math here. Nothing that is going to boggle your mind or anything, but he will impress you with um, the idea of probability. Is it a mathematical possibility that the earth and the universe was created by some other means than by a uh, supreme being? Uh, or is it uh, more possible and probable to consider that it was done by chance? What are those mathematical chances that our, our universe occurred? by chance, mechanistic chance, as opposed to design by a creator. So uh, we'll begin uh, with lesson six. Does God exist video number six? I do want to emphasize to you that uh, we're hoping that you are watching these in order because this particular presentation may not make a lot of sense if you haven't been aware of what we're doing in the process of our discussions. We've started out looking at atheist statements concerning the creation that the universe is eternal, self existing, and not created. 
We've shown that, in fact, there is solid scientific evidence there was a beginning. There's good evidence the beginning was caused. And we're talking now about what was the cause. We've looked at some intuitive examples of design and the creation. We've looked at migration. We've looked at reproduction. We've dealt with architectural design in nature. But all of those are things that have to do with intuitive examples, not any kind of statistical proof, no real mathematics involved in what is concluded about how the creation came to be as it is. And so the last time that we looked at this, we introduced you to the work of a man by the name of Behe and something called irreducible complexity. Part of this is connected to what is called intelligent design. And there's a big movement in this country among religious people to push intelligent design. And I'm all for the concept of there being intelligence in the creation and being design in the creation, but I think we need to be very careful to understand the definition of science. That science is something that involves experimentation, something that can be falsified, something that can be tested something that can be observed, and that all these things must be a part of that picture. Intelligent design is not a way of curing medical problems. Intelligent design is not a way of discovering new materials to use. There may be some philosophical underpinnings of how we do research that is connected to intelligent design, but I suggest to you intelligent design is an apologetic, meaning it is a way of answering questions like the ones we're talking about. Is the universe a product of chance? Or is there an evidence of intelligent design in the creation? It's not science. It's an apology. It's a way of using science, but not a way of doing science. So what we want to do now is to look at something which is called the soft entropy principle. What we're looking at here is the question of whether chance is a viable mechanism to explain the universe that we see. Approach from a mathematical standpoint. Now I want to do a, an example from astronomy that I think will be fairly easy for you to follow. You may not understand all of the scientific points I'm going to make. But I promise you, you will understand the conclusion. Here's the question. Is it mathematically possible for life to occur by chance alone on a workable planet in a physical universe? Is it possible by chance alone? Uh, you know, immediately we get into the discussion where somebody says, well, anything's possible. You know, it, it, you can't ever say anything's impossible, but that isn't true mathematically. There's a thing called the Dirac limit, which says that if a probability exceeds something like one chance in 10 to the 60th, that it can be deemed as mathematically impossible. We're talking about what is reasonable here, what is rational, what is consistent with the evidence that we see. Not the philosophical, I, I would suggest an evasion of saying, well, I'm not going to talk about it because I believe anything can happen given enough time. Well, number one, we don't have infinite time. We have, you know, if you think the Earth is 14 billion years old, that's still a limit. So the, the time issue is not a factor here. Let me show you the kind of thing we get into, and then we'll try to answer the question and put it together for you. We live in a galaxy. 
What I haven't said to you previously is that our galaxy, which is like the one you're looking at here, is not the same as other galaxies in space. Our galaxy is a spiral type B galaxy. I realize that some people have talked about it having bar spiral characteristics, but basically we still see in the astronomy books it's a spiral type B galaxy. What does that mean? Well, it means the arms of our galaxy are wound fairly loosely. That means that there's lots of interstellar material in our galaxy. There's lots of stuff to make planets out of. There's lots of stuff to make life out of. But not all galaxies are the same. 80% of all galaxies in the universe are elliptical galaxies. And by the way, if you're an astronomer or trained in astronomy, I'm including dwarf ellipticals in this discussion. Elliptical galaxies have no interstellar material, essentially. None of the heavier elements necessary to make life. What you're looking at is a very different kind of galaxy than the one in which we live. How can you have life in a place where there's nothing to make it out of and nothing to put it on if you had it made? And that's 80% of all galaxies in space. There are galaxies called irregular galaxies, which have cataclysmic galactic explosions taking place in them. And again, not the right elements. There cannot be life in a system of that type. There are things called separate galaxies. They just blow up every so often of all of the different kinds of galaxies in space. Only about four out of every 100 could possibly sustain or contain a solar system structured in such a way that it can produce life. So what would be the odds of having the right galaxy by chance alone from the Big Bang? Well, let me start out here by saying to you, we've talked about the Big Bang. We pointed out that the Big Bang does not say what banged or who banged it. And I'm not mandating that you believe necessarily in the Big Bang, but there is certainly evidence that the universe started in a singularity. So that's why we're using that discussion. If everything began from some type of process like the Big Bang, what are the mathematical odds you could have the right kind of galaxy by chance alone from the Big Bang? Uh, 1 in 25. That's pretty easy. That's pretty obvious. Let's look at another example. When you look out into space, you see that what we observe in the galaxies of space do not all look the same. This is an actual photograph. And those are all galaxies. But you can see they don't all look the same. Now, one reason they don't look the same is because of the angle at which you look at them. When you look at a galaxy like this, you're looking at it from the top. But if you rotated it 90 degrees, so you're looking at it at the edge, it would look more like a saucer, like this. Now what we've learned in recent years is that where you are in that system makes a difference. Along the equatorial plane of the galaxy, the gravitational forces are so strong that if you had a solar system in that area, it would rip it apart. If you're near the bulge of the galactic system, there are enormous energy sources. We suspect black holes that are producing such dramatic radiation and such dramatic forces that no long-term planetary system could survive in that area. Our location is about a third of the way out in the top part of the galaxy, as we have it indicated in this visual. 
There are actually two galactic habitable zones. And try and stick that one in your head for a minute. Galactic habitable zones. Regions where the forces within the galactic system are such that a stable solar system could exist. Now in reality, the picture you're looking right here is looking at it just flat on edge. If you look at it from a slight elevation, you would see that these galactic habitable zones are like two donuts. One in the top part of the galactic system, one on the bottom part. What would be the mathematical odds of being in one of those donuts? Well, that's a very simple calculation. You just simply calculate the volume of the two donuts and compare it to the volume of the whole galaxy. As you read different sources on the volume of the galactic habitable zones, you'll see that people arguing about whether it's 12 cubic light years or 15 cubic light years or 10 cubic light years. Let's just say 12 cubic light years. I mean, that's a happy average of the numbers we're hearing. What is the volume of the whole galaxy? I think you'll find most sources will say something like uh, 15 million cubic light years. So what would the odds be? 12 out of 15 million. That's a, a fairly easy calculation. Our sun. We've talked about our sun, this incredible furnace made of its own fuel, the hydrogen device that powers our solar system. What I haven't said to you is not all stars are the same. When I was in school, we used to be told that the sun was an average star. Well, that's no longer believed to be true. The sun is extraordinary in a variety of ways. It's kind of interesting that when you look at the sun and you see the processes driving the sun, you look at granulation, you look at all the processes you and I have discussed, and you look at the temperature of the sun, it's sort of in the middle of the stellar nursery. Go outside and then look up at the Pleiades on some October night. Look at it with a pair of binoculars, and you'll see that there's enormous amounts of reflecting material around them. These are blue hot stars. They're vastly hotter than our sun. They have microwave emissions that would cook any planetary system that might be anywhere near them. You could not have a life-supporting planet in a system of this type. But they're beautiful. They're also very young and very hot, not hospitable to life. The Hubble telescope has been doing surveys of stars in space ever since it was put into orbit. This is a picture that shows in very simple terms, what it has found. Notice the redness of most of these stars. What the Hubble telescope has discovered is that some 70% of all stars in the universe, the observable universe from the Hubble telescope, are red dwarf stars. 10% of white dwarf stars. 15% of blue dwarf stars. Which means 95% of all stars in space are too small to support a functional solar system. Now somebody says, well now wait a minute, all you've got to do is get closer to it and you'll be okay. Yeah, the galactic habitable zone, in this case the, uh, the stellar habitable zone, could be moved closer. But the problem is that there's a thing called Rausch's limit. When you get close enough to a star, the, the tidal forces, the gravitational forces, will prevent any kind of planetary system from surviving or being formed. So you can't just move closer. There are other factors that are involved, even other kinds of radiation involved. 
It's also interesting to realize that some red stars are too big. This is a, a drawing of a star in Orion called Betelgeuse. The size of Betelgeuse is just astounding. Here's a comparison of Betelgeuse and our sun. You say, where's the sun? It's down there on the bottom left-hand side. In our actual picture, it's one pixel. Compared to Betelgeuse, you could put our whole solar system inside Betelgeuse and have much, much more life. If our sun became a red giant, there'd be no life here. And there are some stars that are even larger. Many stars like our sun are flare stars. They emit massive amounts of radiation and particles that would destroy any planetary system anywhere near them. Our sun is incredibly stable this way. It doesn't have the violent flare eruptions that we see on some stars. When we look out into space, we see some stars. Were the system to pieces that was in an area like that. This is a diagram that many of you will recognize. It's called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. What it does is that it plots the temperature of stars along the horizontal axis with the luminosity of stars along the vertical axis. I'm told that there are some 25 million different possible locus points in that diagram, and only a very, very few could possibly support a planetary system. Some of my astronomy books say the odds of having a star that could support a rational, life-bearing planetary system may be as small as one in 25 million. And by the way, there's one kind of star that's just absolutely amazing. And it's not the big blue star here. It's the thing to the lower right side of it. This is an object that has so much gravity and so much mass that it is literally sucking the life out of that big blue giant. Now this is a drawing. I'll show you an actual photograph in a minute. It will eventually take that big blue giant star a thousand times the size of our sun. And it will crush it to a mass the size of a thumbtack. If you were to shine a laser beam by this thing, it would get caught in that swirling vortex. It would spiral into the center and then it would simply disappear. As I'm sure most of you know, it's called a black hole. A space-going vacuum cleaner that absorbs anything that gets anywhere near it. If a black hole came near the sun, it would rip it apart instantly. If a black hole hit an object that was of a terrestrial nature, it would destroy it in a literal flash. Now, there's a myriad of movies out there, not even really good science fiction, that tell us about black holes in imaginative ways, but these are real objects. They distort the region of space around them. And here is one of the first pictures ever taken of a black hole. The black hole is to the left of the center where the little white square is. And as you can see, it's a digital picture. Material is spiraling into the black hole. That white object to the upper right side of the black hole is actually a star being destroyed as it spirals into the black hole. The accretion disk around the outside has the same diameter as the Earth's orbit around the sun. Now, you know it takes us 365 days to go around the sun one time. That disk makes a complete rotation every 12 and a half hours. But that's because of the massive gravity that is located at the center. Now, there's an interesting point here. You have lots of things that you can worry about as you sit there watching this video program. But being swallowed by a black hole is not one of them. <laughs> the closest black hole to us is located in the Northern Cross. 
It is called Cygnus X1 Beta. It is over 8,000 light years from the Earth and poses no threat to us whatsoever. But every year we find hundreds of black holes. They are found all over the universe. The mathematical odds of not being near a black hole is very, very small. Now, we not only have the conditions of the galaxy and the conditions of the stars, but we have the conditions of planets. We are located at a very strategic position relative to the sun. We talked about galactic habitable zones. This is a stellar habitable zone. Where we are makes a difference. The only thing wrong with Venus is it's too close to the sun, but that screws up everything else. It makes a difference how far away you are. And our size is also a critical factor. Look at the comparisons here of the sizes of the planets compared to the sun. The problem here is that if you're too large, like Jupiter, you have the wrong gases. If you're too small, like Mars or Mercury, you don't have enough gases or no gases at all. The size is critical. You also have the issues of intruders into the solar system. In 1995, I was giving lectures on the compatibility of science and faith, and I was talking about a comet that looked like it was headed for the Earth, but it really did look like the Levy-Shoemaker comet was going to hit the Earth, and astronomers were concerned. At that time, there was great confusion as to how much devastation it would cause. It was going to surely be massive. But we didn't know that much about what happens in a cometary collision. In Tunguska, Siberia, we think that a fragment of a comet had hit the Earth, and that was devastating enough, but something the size of the one you're looking at would be totally catastrophic. So let me remember what happened in 1995. In order for the comet to get to us, it had to come by Jupiter. As it went by Jupiter, Jupiter ripped it up into 17 pieces. And in July of 1995, you sat in your living room and watched those fragments slam into the surface of Jupiter, producing a fireball larger than the diameter of the Earth. If that thing had hit the Earth, it would have destroyed a vast majority of everything on this planet. But you know what we've learned since that time? It is a statistical impossibility for a comet of any size to hit the Earth. Because we have four comet sweepers, Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, and Jupiter. Those four planets are arranged in a sequence that pulls in the comets along the ecliptic. Their gravitational fields overlap and their sizes are adequate so that they will pull in any of those incoming comets and destroy them. Now, if you're wondering why that happens, the comets are debris that is outside the orbit of Pluto. The material is pulled into the sun by the combined gravitational forces of the planets that are involved, plus other tidal forces that are present in the cosmos. They will come in along the ecliptic because the large planets we have provide more force along the ecliptic than any other way. In order to get by all four of those planets, it has to pass between them, and one of them will suck them up. And we have seen repeated collisions since that time of cometary objects with the major planets. 
By the way, I do want to explain one other thing. Some of you may have heard about asteroids wiping out the dinosaurs. We'll talk about that later on. An asteroid is not a comet. An asteroid is an orbiting object. They are inside Jupiter's orbit, so that's a different issue. And they do have positive effects upon the Earth, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But that's not the same thing we're talking about. But we could go on here almost indefinitely. We could talk about the Earth's magnetic field, critical to our survival. Deflects charged particles coming from outer space away from us, and particles coming from the sun. You can't orbit a nuclear furnace like the sun and not have radiation issues, but the, the magnetic field protects us. We could talk about the tilt of the Earth. The tilt of the Earth is critical. It mixes the gases. It provides changes in radiation, so parts of the Earth don't overheat or overcool. And do you know what controls the tilt of the Earth? Answer, the moon. We now know that the moon has a gravitational block with the Earth, which keeps the tilt near our 23 and a half degrees, that is critical for the proper mixing of our gases and for the deflections of our weather. The moon. You thought the moon was just for lovers. Well, it's useful for that, but it has incredible value in stabilizing the Earth's tilt. By the way, there's a wonderful book on this if you're interested. It's called What If the Moon Didn't Exist? It's written by Neil Cummings, who is the head of the astronomy department at the University of Maine. It's now a fairly old book, but I think you'll find it's still available in various places. We could even talk about the, the atmosphere of the Earth. Do you know that there are multiple layers to the Earth's atmosphere? And every one of them is critical to your survival. The one that is probably the most publicity is the ozone layer. That's the one that we have been concerned about because of its effects on ultraviolet light. But they're all critical. Now let's try to put this together in a way that we can analyze it mathematically. Here we have a list of some of the variables that we have talked about. Now, I want to indicate to you here that I have reduced most of these numbers enormously. We said the odds of being in the right place in the galaxy is something like 12 out of 15 million, but I'm going to reduce it to 1 in 100. I don't want to exaggerate the numbers. We said the odds of having the right kind of stars, 1 in 25 million, but I just use 1 in 25. It's the process that I'm concerned about here, not the numbers. Now, you look at those numbers and you say, yeah, I take those kind of chances every time I get on the interstate. And there's no argument there, but there's an important point about probability here. And let me demonstrate that to you. I have a deck of cards here, playing cards in my hand, and in this deck there's an ace of spades. I'm going to put the ace of spades in the deck, shuffle up the deck, and I want to ask you to draw a card out of the shuffled deck of cards. What are the odds that you'll pull the ace of spades? It wasn't the ace of spades. What are the odds? One in 52. Okay. I put the card back in the deck, I shuffle up the deck, and I ask you to try it again. What are the odds this time? Well, getting closer, still don't have it. 1 in 52. Yeah, I, I put it back in. So it's not 1 in 51, it's 1 in 52. Now let's suppose I said to you, okay, this time what's going to happen is I'm going to shuffle up the deck, you're going to draw the ace of spades, I'm going to put it back in, I'm going to shuffle it up, and you're going to draw it again. What are the odds that you can draw the ace of spades twice in a row, back to back, out of a cold deck? Now, if you know how to handle probability here, it would be 1 out of 52 times 1 out of 52. That's one chance out of 2,704. Suppose I said to you, all right, this time you're going to do it four times in a row. I hold out the deck, 
You pull the ace of spades and put it back in, you draw it again, I put it back in, you draw it again, I put it back in, four times in a row. See, about that time, I start looking up your sleeve and your collar. You've got to be cheating. What are the odds? One out of 52 times one out of 52 times one out of 52 times one out of 52. That's one chance out of 7,311,616. If you don't believe me, multiply that. Now you say, what's this got to do with anything? Okay, let's go back to our illustration. What would be the situation with these variables? Well, it's the same as the cards, isn't it? Each of those numbers would have to be multiplied. So the odds of having all of those present would be 1 out of 25 times 1 out of 100 times 1 out of 25 times 1 out of 50. You would have to multiply those probabilities. And if you do that, what you get is one chance out of 1757812500000000. And the atheist has to say, if there's any chance at all, I'll take it! <laughs> and I have no argument there. You know, if that's your religion, that's what you have to adhere to. But let me make a point of practicality. If you jump out of an airplane at 10,000 feet in the air with no parachute of any kind, the odds of your survival are 1 in 10 million, according to the American Parachute Club. 1 in 10 million. Now let's suppose I've got a millfold here with a million dollars in it which is undoubtedly the dumbest thing I've said in this entire series. But anyway, you've got a billfold here with a million dollars in it. I say to you, I will give it to you tax-free if you jump out of an airplane 10,000 feet in the air with nothing on but your birthday suit. Would you do it? You know, what's interesting here is that the number we're talking about here is 176 million times less likely than jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet with no parachute. And my experience in 41 years of doing lectureship programs is that nobody will gamble their life on one odds of one in 10 million, but many people will gamble their eternal soul on a probability that is 176 million times worse than that. Now let me make a point here. All we've talked about is having a ball of rock in the right place. We haven't talked about life on the ball of rock. One of the better known atheists in the last century was a man by the name of Anthony Flew. Flew argued philosophically against the existence of God. Somebody finally got him to look at the odds of life occurring by chance. And Flew, the atheist, in his last book, gave the title, There is a God. He says you have to go with the facts wherever the facts lead you because the probability of life is so astronomically small that it is not possible to believe life could occur by chance. And you would have to multiply the probability of life by the probability of the cosmos occurring by chance. I want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, I have not been quoting the Bible here. I have not been making a theological argument. I have not been quoting creationists. I've been talking about the best minds in science, like Frederick Hoyle, like Albert Einstein. And I have not been using any kind of circular logic here in this discussion. I've been asking you to look factually 
at the evidence itself. May I suggest to you that in fact the argument I have been making here is very biblical? Listen to Romans, the first chapter, beginning with verse 19. For that which can be known of God lies plain before our eyes. God himself has made it clear to us. For those things of God which the eye is unable to see ever since the beginning of the world have been clearly perceptible and understandable through the things he has made. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we've talked about. In these six videos, that's all we have dealt with is the things he has made. Now what we need to do is to talk about what the nature of God has to be, what the nature of the Creator has to be, and how well our concept of God fits that. And this passage goes on and says that. Even his eternal power and deity. What does that mean? Then it describes our world. The unbeliever then is that excuse. We can know there is a God. But they have refused to honor him as God or to give thanks to him. Hence their thinking has ended in futility and their misguided minds are plunged in darkness behind a facade of wisdom. They have become just fools. That was a pretty good description of me not too many years ago as an atheist. I think it's a description of much of our culture today. Frustrated, misguided, unable to deal realistically even with life itself. So I hope you consider the discussion that there is intelligence in design and what the nature of that intelligence has to be. And we'll start that in our next presentation. Well, while Chris moves the camera around, and sorry for that little uh, problem there in the middle of the episode there. For some reason, the camera that we were using to focus on the TV screen uh, went dark, um, turned off. And so what we had to do was get it started again. Um, so we will try to correct that for next time and, and make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, one of the one of the points he made at the end uh, is is interesting, and it's it's something you hear today uh, in our our world and in our politics. Um, follow the science. We believe the science, and I'm not going to get into the uh, the realities or the impact or the strategies to uh, rid ourselves of uh, COVID-19, but science as we know it is uh, defined by and determined by scientists and scientists throughout history have been wrong over and over and over again um, what was what has been fact for uh, centuries decades for sure all of a sudden with a new discovery becomes um, error, fiction. And so when we rely, and I guess you could say rather unnaturally, maybe we over-rely on science and scientists, it could be that we're placing our trust and our hope and our faith in individuals who are not always the most objective purveyors of science, uh, true science or reality. 
And so uh, just just don't be misled by individuals who um, who will throw science at you and say you're a fool if you don't believe this. You must be some sort of science denier. You've heard that phrase before. Um, a flat earther, um, a Neanderthal, or some something like this that you can't comprehend facts and data or else you don't want to comprehend facts and data. And one of the things that I like so much about these videos and uh, what John Clayton has provided for us and has provided uh, for uh, people over the last 30 years or so um, is that he, as he said, we that's the first uh, maybe the first Bible passage he's looked at um, in in six lessons. What he has done so far is present logic to us, presented science to us, presented data to us, and so um, he is coming at this from uh, the angle that he pursued it. He pursued the effort to prove the Bible was wrong from a scientific standpoint. And uh, that last philosopher, uh, Flew, yeah, Anthony uh, Flew, Anthony Flew um, pursued it from a philosophical standpoint to try to disprove that uh, God exists and that God created the universe. And, and both of them, thankfully, were honest enough with themselves and with their research and they came to no other conclusion, no conclusion other than the fact that our universe had a beginning, it had to have a creator, there's too much design in it for chance to be driving that, that design. Um, and what he does in this lesson is he focuses on chance, uh, mathematical chance, and uh, what, what are the odds? You know, how, how possible is it that our world, our... You know, Chris tried to impress me with all of his new technology. When I first walked in, he said, I have, I have multiple cameras now. And I said, are we going to be okay? And he says, yeah, we'll be okay. And we will be. Uh, we just had a couple of little, little things um, go on today. Chris, did you want to say anything? Um, <clears throat> just with an interesting little side historical note. The uh, philosopher he's talking about, Anthony Flew, mm -hmm. was actually in several debates with a member of the church preacher. Uh, his name was Thomas Warren. Okay. His big name uh, defended the faith for a long time, was really into apologetics, was really in, into debates around the 60s. But he probably had, I don't know, five or six, seven debates with, with that guy. With that and guy. at the end of his life, that he, he converted. That is amazing. It's an, it's kind of incredible. It is amazing how uh, when someone like that devotes um, his life to disproving it, when it gets down toward the end, something snaps. And I don't know if it's getting closer to the end or not. I don't know when he wrote that book. Is that the end of his life? Relative yeah. to. But thankfully, someone like uh, Clayton, it happened to him, I think, in college or shortly after college. Um, and so he's been able to devote his, um, the bulk of, of what he does besides his teaching to 
the uh, production of these materials and, and these uh, videos to try to help you and me, um, individuals who don't have his understanding, don't have his background, don't have his knowledge of, of uh, physical science and astronomy and all of those things to give us uh, ammunition, as we have said, against those who would throw science at us. Now, as I have said, if someone asked you, what did you learn from, from this video? Um, unless you were taking awful good notes, um, you might be able to remember a, uh, a few things, but you're probably not six months from now, should you encounter someone uh, in an argument, be able to recall these things. Thankfully, they are um, in print, so to speak, and are available, um, and you can go and review those those videos. I don't know how long they will be up on uh, on our our website forever, but we we we'll leave them up there as long as we can. Um, so you can go back and uh, and I, like I've said, there's one around lesson 14 or 15 that I've l looked at probably three or four times, and then if if you ask me to make the argument that he makes, I'd have to go back and look at it again. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an argument worth considering, but it's, it's, uh, it's not mainstream as far as, as Christianity uh, is concerned. But it is a way of looking at, it has to do with the age uh, of the earth, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, galactical habitable zones, a phrase I'd never heard of before uh, before these videos and um, what what he's saying there is, is and and the overarching point is there are very 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 few of those out there um, your chances of being near a black hole that will eat you up <laughs> is is far greater than being in a zone that can support a planet that has life and support the life that's on that planet. Um, uh, that that life actually does exist on that planet. The planet that can support it is different from a planet that does support it. So you've got the potential and then the reality. We have a wonderful, wonderful planet. We, we do not, I'm, I guarantee that the bulk of us, even those who love God and appreciate Him for all that He's done. The bulk of us who um, are believers don't take as much time to enjoy the world and thank God for what He has done. All of the things that He talked about there, and, and uh, I, I printed these out simply because I don't have them at recall, but when He talks about uh, and I can that list that he put up there like this um, of the odds and and he went very low on those odds he went 1 in 25 when it was really 1 in 25 million that's cutting it back considerably to give us numbers that we could look at that don't look that impressive but when you multiply all of those variables all of those criteria together as you have to do to come up with the probability 
that this was created by chance. I think it's one quadrillion, I, I think if I'm reading, 757 <laughs> trillion, 812 billion, 500 million. One in that number that all of these could occur and all of these did occur. And, and for us to, um, to listen to someone that says, oh, well, you know, in order for this to happen and this to happen, things had to line up just right, and, and mechanistic chance is, is, is a possibility, and, and then this had to happen, and this. When you talk to people about evolution, they say, okay, in order to go from this species to this species, you had to have like 10, 10 steps. Uh, mutations and 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 they had to be the right they had to be good mutations not bad mutations I'm sure he'll talk about uh, that in here but they they will stake their lives physical and eternal on things with such little 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 chance that it could happen and the question is why and and I think we have alluded to that uh, before. The Bible restricts us. The Bible is a law. The Bible is God's law. And anytime there are laws in our society, they restrict our freedom. Let's hope that they are for our own good and for the good of society. And I think most of most all of our laws are. But at the same time. It, it holds us back, our individual freedom. And there are people who do not want to be uh, restricted where their religion and where their beliefs are concerned, yet they will be restricted by social um, and um, civil laws uh, out there in the world. The odds of being able to fall out of an airplane without a parachute and live are 176 million times worse than the fact that our world and solar system came about by chance. Better. You know what he said. <laughs> it is. It, it would be way more difficult for our system to come about by chance than it would be for an individual to fall out of a plane. Yeah. You could fall out of a plane 176 million times before you lived once, before the universe came into existence the way they're saying it does. That may be one way of looking at it, but I'm not sure that's... <laughs> I'm not sure that's accurate or not. <laughs> that's right. It's just that one out of what, 10 million? One out of ten million chances. If you fell out of the plane without a parachute, you would uh, you would survive. Creation of the universe. The odds are seven, one point, one hundred seventy-six million times worse than that chance. That's how I say there it. There it is. Okay. So um, we're looking at extremely large numbers. When he says 10 to the 60th power, something like that, I believe that's 10 followed by 60 zeros. Think so. I don't even think we even have a, a name for that number. And so um, when, when he starts, when people say, well, anything's possible, that principle or that rule or whatever he said that math, math, mathematicians 
use, say after it gets past 10 to the 60th power, uh, it is mathematically impossible. Well, there are individuals who will go with those odds that these things occurred. In fact, you could probably get to that if you used his, his uh, real numbers here. I'm sure you could, because if he went from one to uh, one out of 25 chances, knocking it down from one out of 25 million, did he yeah, say? I think so. Even if you added a couple of thousand to a few of these, you'd get to your 60 zeros very, very fast. So uh, for individuals to um, throw chance at you, to throw probability at you, or to say that, well, anything's possible given enough time, he even dissed that by saying, we don't have infinite time. However you say, however old you say the world is, that's a limited amount of time. And these things, this design, these coincidences that he talks about, our earth, the tilt of the earth, the moon controlling uh, things on this earth, the, the earth's movement, the, the atmospheres and how they're set up. The one that blew my mind was the, uh, the uh, sweepers that he talked about. Our planetary, our planetary sweepers. Um, we don't have to live in fear that the world is going to come to an end, the world's going to come to an end by a comet hitting us. Now, I don't know how God is going to consume everything uh, by fire. We know that when he used water, it came up from the deeps and from the heavens and, and, and uh, came from both directions, or so, so it, it suggests he might do the same thing. We know that the core of our world is fire, is molten, and so uh, it could be that when he chooses to destroy the world, he will do something very similar. That's conjecture on my part. But if we can see a comet coming at us, that's the old argument, no one knows the day or time when God is going to end the world. It will come like a thief in the night. And seeing a comet coming at us, and if that's what ends our world, we can plan. We can get ready. We can sell our goods and go on a mountaintop. We can, we can uh, straighten out our lives. We can, we can do a lot of things. God says it's going to come in the flash of, of an eye. Um, and, and everything will be consumed. So, and it could be. And, and the, the point that I think he is making there is that uh, God in creating our galactical habitable zone has set it up so that that zone is um, defended against things that other solar systems and other planets, uh, maybe even other planets in our, uh, our solar system, uh, don't have as a defense. But we have those four very large planets that are protecting us with their gravity, that anything that comes into that um, ecliptical, as he called it, uh, and that's, I looked it up, it's that, that uh, the, the uh, revolution, the path that we go around the sun on, anything that comes into that um, is, is going to get sucked into one of those four, um, and maybe more than one of those four um, very large planets, gravity, and will be destroyed. I don't know 
what kind of impact it'll have on them. It will have less of an impact on them that will, than it would on us because, uh, because of our size. Just the fact that we've got four sweepers, uh, planetary sweepers out there protecting us, guardians, I guess you could say, um, is another impressive piece. Chris, do you have anything? No, I've, I've always wondered why they were so big and we were so small. And that kind of makes sense, like Saturn and Jupiter and those, those guys are massive. And you start thinking about that, and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. They had to cover a lot of territory so they could protect us. Yeah, and it's interesting. He says if your planet is too large, it, it will have too much gravity. Yeah. If it's too small, it won't have the gases or vice versa, or maybe those things are in there. And, and uh, I guess we have a Goldilocks planet. It's just right. It is, um, it is perfect for uh, maintaining um, and sustaining uh, life um, and, and uh, for us to um, ignore that fact um, I think is, is dangerous for us to refute the fact that uh, this came about through a design from a creator that, and this is a gross understatement, really knew what he was doing. <laughs> um, it's something that uh, I, I, I hope people will, uh, who are encountering these lessons, and if they are of the belief system that um, the Bible is bunk, that it was written by a bunch of fallible men and has a bunch of errors in it and uh, it contradicts science. If nothing else, I'm hoping that these lessons will, um, will aid in your thinking about how that's not necessarily the case. And in fact, I would say that's not the case. Um, he will continue over the next 30 lessons to show you how science and the Bible uh, are one. One supports the other, and as he says, if it doesn't, if one doesn't support the other, then one of them is wrong. And science is observable, and we can understand it. The Bible, if it doesn't support science, it's in contradiction to what we know to be. And so it's not truth. So it has to go hand in hand with what we find in our world and what we know um, about our world. Trying to think if there's anything else here that uh, that I wanted to mention. Look at my notes. The only other thing um, that I wanted to mention was what what he um, said going into next week. Next week he's going to talk um, about the nature of God. Um, he has made arguments up to this point that our situation, our world, our solar system, our galaxy, our universe um, could only be developed by um, an intelligent supreme being. Uh, he, next week he's going to talk a little about a little bit about that individual. Um, and I say that individual and uh, we usually think of God the Father as the creator of the universe. But there are clear evidences of passages in the New Testament that um, the Spirit 
moved upon the face of the waters and had um, a, a um, part in that creation. There are at least three or four passages um, that, I could, that I could go find real quickly that talk about Jesus taking an active part in the creation. And the phrase that comes to mind is, nothing was made without him. Uh, and I can't remember John what John 1. John 1? Like verse 2 or 3. Well, I should have remembered that one. Um, so, and there are two or three others uh, that, that, that support that notion that Jesus had a very active part. When we find, um, let us make man in our own image. Um, didn't say let me. He let us. The Godhead and, and their relationship um, it's not fully understandable, I think, by us because these are, are, are beings that we as human beings, human beings cannot fully grasp their true core uh, nature. We know them through the scripture, um, but understanding how that three-in-one situation works is a little bit beyond us. Um, maybe he'll deal with, with some of that over the next, uh, next few weeks. Uh, but when we normally refer to God creating the uh, heavens and the earth, I at least think God Father. And that may be uh, not always a, a, an accurate um, description of how that actually took place. So, if you have no other, no other thoughts, we are right up against our 5 o'clock break. Um, and uh, we will begin next week uh, with lesson number seven, uh, the nature of God. And maybe we'll learn something about that to which he has alluded to up to this point only in concept uh, and only as an alternative to the science that does not support all of this happened by chance. If you want to listen to the lesson in its entirety, sorry about the, uh, the break there in the middle. It's my fault, but if you want to listen to the, the lesson in its entirety, I'll slam these two sections together on our YouTube channel, and you can listen to it there without any breaks. You can also listen to it by calling 304-278-0763, uh, so it'll be on those places as well as your favorite podcast app. So be looking for it there. See you later, guys. See ya. Bye-bye. <laughs>